I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. What Café de Dome was to the Lost Generation, the dining hall at Bennington College was to the Lost Generation Revisited, otherwise known as Generation X. The movable feast had moved ahead six decades and across the Atlantic. And while, of course, southwestern Vermont wasn't Paris, somehow, in the early to mid-80s, it was. Was just as sly, louche, low-down, and baroquely wicked and speaking of sly, louche, low-down, and baroquely wicked, check out the habitués. Seated around the table, berets swap for wayfarers and ready to gorge in the conversation, if not the food. Cocaine, the Pernod of its era, is a notorious appetite suppressant, after all. Where Brett Easton Ellis, future writer of American Psycho and co-leader of the literary Brat Pack. Jonathan Lethem, future writer of Fortress of Solitude and MacArthur Genius and Donna Tartt, future writer of The Secret History and Pulitzer Prize winner. All three were in Bennington's class of 1986. All three were a long way from home. Los Angeles, California, Brooklyn, New York, and Grenada, Mississippi, respectively. All three were, at various times, infatuated and disappointed with one another. Their friendships stimulated and fueled by rivalry as much as affection. And all three would mythologize Bennington in their fiction that, as it turns out, wasn't quite, and thereby become myths themselves. So grab a tray, pull up a chair, and try not to look like you're eavesdropping. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. It's the fall of 1982. The new freshman class is arriving on campus. Here's Brick Smith, class of 85 had she graduated, on what those bright eyes would have seen. Let me explain to you what Bennington looked like. It looked like something out of a child's fairy tale. It's hypnotic, it's beautiful, it's light, it's shadow, and it's so isolated and so green and surrounded by mountains. At the center of the campus, there was this building. It was tall, white, and very, very grand with columns and a bell clock. It was called Commons. 
And if you stood in front of Commons, you'd see to one side an old graveyard. And then if you looked straight ahead, you would see this long, lush, rolling lawn flanked by stately New England clapboard houses so that your eye was drawn to the end of it where the earth suddenly just fell away. Poof! But not really, of course. It looked as if it did, and we all called it the end of the world. There was this rumor that Bennington was the only place in the world where the four winds meet at once. These mists, these thick, heavy mists would roll in there at night, so thick that you couldn't see your hand when you held it up to your face. I mean, we were literally under the, under like magnetic, creepy starlight and swirling mists. Your head would spin when you were there. It was like, it was a different dimension or it was a place where the veils between the dimensions were so thin. Like there was this energy coming up from the earth and I'm sure it tapped into all of our creativity and all, because all of us were intuitive, creative artists that were picking up stuff and like little antennas. And this place was so charged, like polarically. I don't even know if that's a word. It was crazy. And I think that having that kind of atmosphere, we all pushed each other to the limits and we end each other on. And that kind of creative competition and letting your mind go wild is powerful shit. So that's the setting. Now for the customs. Paula Powers, class of 86. The Friday night parties were funded by the college. They would buy a keg and it would be in a different dorm every week. And basically everybody went. Because what else are you going to do? You're in the middle of nowhere in Vermont. You know, There was a lot of drugs and sex and it just all seemed extremely decadent to me, you know, coming from Catholic school. Security would show up every once in a while, but they didn't seem to care. I remember walking in and standing next to a security guard and he's looking up at a ceiling and there's a girl swinging from a chandelier, literally like in a stairwell. And he just looks at me and he goes, Sometimes you just got to look away. (laughs) Apologies, listeners. Where are my manners? I haven't even properly introduced Bennington to you yet. You now know what it looks like, feels like, what its various moods, impressions, and demands are without knowing exactly what it is. Well, here's a thumbnail sketch provided by Jonathan Letham. Inside that trimmed green sanctuary was a sort of collective solipsistic laboratory where high-strung urban children were allowed to play however they liked. One part experimental arts college founded in the 1920s by passionate red-leaning patrons and one part lunatic preserve for wayward children of privilege, those too familiar with psych counseling and rehab and which recapitulated in junior form the tribal rituals of Mediterranean resorts and East Hampton summers and the VIP room of Studio 54. Actually, that's Jonathan's thumbnail sketch of the fictional small liberal arts college, located in the green hills of Vermont and attended by the Brooklyn-born protagonist of his sixth novel, Fortress of Solitude. Fictional small liberal arts college, but only technically fictional, 
Fictional, but only because he calls it Camden instead of Bennington, which it so transparently and unmistakably is. This is Jonathan's thumbnail sketch of Bennington. It was like we'd been sent to go to college at Andy Warhol's factory. And here is a brief history of Bennington's origins, courtesy of Matt Jacobson, class of 83. Bennington College came into this world in the form of a lecture given at the Colony Club in the late 20s. The Colony Club was a bastion of well-heeled women uh, left over from the days when women ran New York, as they used to say. It was one of those old waspy enclaves. It housed uh, the swankiest of the swank, and they had swell lunches. But I guess that's all encompassed in the word wasp. The school's first president, Robert Lee, gave an address about the new fashion in education and how it would apply to a woman's college in Vermont. It went over extremely well, by the way, a standing room only. What seemed attractive to those folks all born in the Victorian era was the fact that this was a far more casual manner of educating. The school believed more in doing than actually memorizing by rote. That was the mojo at the time. As Matt Jacobson just said, Bennington as a concept began in the Roaring Twenties. It wasn't until the dead broke thirties, though, that the concept was actualized. The school, all female, opened its doors in 1932, at the height of the Great Depression. Also, as Matt Jacobson just said, Bennington was something new, something fresh. It was based on the philosophy of educational reformer John Dewey. Learn by doing, an edict to be followed not only by its students, but by its professors as well. Professor, I should add, is a term Bennington disdained. Bennington didn't want professors teaching. It wanted practitioners, that is, artists, teaching. The poet, W.H. Auden, had been a member of the Literature and Language Division. So had Kenneth Burke and Howard Nemirov. And essayist scholar Stanley Edgar Hyman, husband of horror novelist and short story writer Shirley Jackson. The Fine Arts Division had included painters Jules Olitsky and Paul Feely, sculptor Anthony Caro, critic Clement Greenberg. Eric Fromm had taught psychology, Martha Graham, dance. Bennington was an immediate scandal because of its lack of grades, of requirements, of rules. This quote from an unnamed founder captures, I think, its essence. We wanted a college where a girl could hang upside down from a tree in her bloomers if she felt like it. Incidentally, boys would be allowed to hang upside down in their bloomers starting in 1969 when the school went co-ed. Bennington was, in brief, a paradox. An academic institution that scorned both academics and institutions. A college for the uncollegiate. Perfect for someone like Jonathan Lethem. I barely did graduate high school. I mean, and not in a kind of juvenile, delinquent, flagrant, you know, way, but just out of total disinterest. I'd stopped taking math classes. And I wasn't a viable college candidate in any uh, ordinary sense. And really, my anti-institutional bias was so powerful then that I was just ignoring the whole procedure. When music and art high school had their, like, college fair and everybody, all the Students went to pick up the applications and talk to representatives of the different colleges. I didn't go. And my girlfriend at the time 
brought home a Bennington application and gave it to me and said, I think this is a place you could get into. She just spotted that I was completely ignoring the whole situation. And I think I fell in love with the idea of it because of the way the place built itself, you know, kind of no grades. And I think it was the case that Bennington would admit you without a high school diploma. Or without SAT scores, for that matter. Here's Lisa Fader, who started out class of 85, ended up class of 86. That was another thing that drew me there, no SATs. And at the time, I just really did not want to study for SATs. I had just embraced, like, punk rock and angry music. And if it wasn't cool, I wasn't interested. Like, music and being cool and dressing cool were more important than my academic performance. And Bennington in the early 80s was, for all intents and purposes, self-selecting. Its acceptance rate not 100%, but close. Jonathan Latham again. I mean, the cynical view would be it was like a holding area for students whose families wouldn't have them not go to college, but were basically not going to go to college. I used to joke that it was like where the druggy sibling of the, you know, legacy Harvard or Yale family, it was like a place to hide them as opposed to just letting them loose on the streets of New York City. In another sense, it was almost designed very generously as a place to be in not college college. Even within it, there were these pockets of indulgence, which I ran for, I made a beeline for them, I sensed them. Gunnar Schoenbeck's music class where you played his invented instruments. So everyone was a permanent beginner because you were taking a class in objects that the professor had invented. And everyone knew you passed the course whether you ever showed up a single day or not. I thought that was a fascinating idea. And so I wanted to test it and see if it was true. So I went the first day to see him welcome us and show us the instruments and I never turned up again. This not college college was expensive. More expensive than any college college. According to a 1981 New York Times article, Bennington's tuition wasn't among the highest in the country. It was the very highest. Unsurprisingly, many of the students it attracted were filthy, stinking, rich. Brick Smith. So, like, at Bennington, there were, I'm telling you, proper heiresses. Like, the Barbara Huttons of my generation were there. The Campbell Soup family, the DuPonts, Ariadne Getty, Steely Posturepedic. I mean, you name it. It was like a who's who. There was Princess there who would be helicoptered in. There was the heiress to Baskin Robbins, which always fascinated me. You know, I was like, do you want every flavor at your house? There was an heiress of a very, very famous, hugely wealthy family whose name everyone would know. We were all kind of fascinated by her. What do you mean, kind of? We were fascinated by her. And um, the rumor was she had a $100 a day cocaine habit. And the rumor also was that every week her trustee would come to school and like dole out only so much money. So, you know, I remember the trustee's name was Roger and Roger was coming and this girl would always panic. Not that this heiress's cocaine habit set her apart. Writer Jessica Blau wasn't a student at Bennington in the 80s, but an older friend of hers was. 
Jessica remembers her friend coming home to Santa Barbara for winter break, getting a nose job. I have a photo of her snorting coke after her nose job with her nose with the silver thing over it in her dorm room at Bennington. She had the nose job in California. And I remember all this discussion because she had it right before she had to fly back for, I guess, spring semester. So she had to fly back like two days later. And then there was like swelling, all that stuff from the air pressure. I remember hearing about that. But then later on, it was like, sure enough, she flew with the nose job. She survived the air pressure. She got off the plane and she started snorting lines. Just leaning over this big, thick line, still bandaged. It's like everybody's back. It's like, you're back, you're back. Here, have a line. But back to the filthy, stinking rich. They're different from you and me. As Todd O'Neill, Bennington class of 83, had he graduated, can attest. There was a girl at Bennington. I ended up going to visit her in her apartment on Park Avenue. I think it was nine bedrooms. It didn't seem to belong with the word apartment. And her father was indeed an art collector. I don't know if he gave her the money to buy a Picasso etching for Christmas each year. But in any case, she had purchased some Picasso etchings on her own. It was her hobby, and her father's hobby were buying Picassos, you know. Jonathan Latham attended a majority-minority public elementary school in Brooklyn. Then later, the high school of music and art, also public, but in Manhattan. Here he is on the culture shock that still hasn't quite worn off. It's hard to know how to explain how (laughs) helpless I was on arrival at Bennington without understanding that I'd almost never even set foot inside the building of a private educational institution. And here I was at school with these kids, most of whom would probably say the same thing about public schools that they were mysterious edifices that they would never dream of entering. I had been part of a world where just being white was privilege, but the milieu was of a kind of a, the term inner city is no longer the right one because it's got queasy associations. But I was in a redlined neighborhood where many of the homes were abandoned buildings with concrete blocks bricking up the window faces. The schools I went to, there were impassioned teachers, but these were teachers who were on the equivalent of like missions into the Gaza Strip. These were places that the city and the society had signed off on. The world I knew just wasn't congruent with Bennington. It was like I was smuggled in from an alien world. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest. And they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. 
Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The princess with the helicopter, Her Imperial Highness, Princess Faranaz Pallavi, by the way, the Shah of Iran's daughter, who brought a bodyguard with her to class, and the Park Avenue girl with the Picasso etchings, might have seemed the most representative of Bennington. They were not, however, the norm. 65% of students were on financial aid, a far higher percentage than the national average. Bennington was, in those days, a school of economic extremes. Jonathan Latham again. There was no middle class. There were those of us who worked in the dining hall and there were those who had probably never washed a piece of silverware (laughs) in their lives and never would. (laughs) Another thing Bennington rated high in then, defections. The high attrition rate was another legend. It was in that set of prematurely cynical remarks that you would sort of circulate, you know. And of course, you're not a real Bennington student unless you drop out. It's like, if you graduated, you missed the point. Morris Spiegel was a student at Bennington from 1972 to 1976, a teacher from 1984 to 1992. Here she is on something a colleague of hers in the Literature and Language Division used to say. So Richard Trisman spoke in aphorisms or in perfect paragraphs, as people often noted. He spoke in perfect paragraphs about Juvenal, and he spoke in perfect paragraphs about Lenny Bruce. He was just a most unusual person. And he described Bennington as a place that either accepted foreign bodies or rejected them. You know, I've thought about that a lot. Because it was such a particular place, I think it either made sense to you or it just really didn't. Finding it nonsensical, at least initially, is Beth Greenberg-Jones, class of 85. I spent my entire first semester writing transfer applications. It's like another planet, you know, those years. Also, in that point, it was um, it was especially tiny. I don't even know how many students were there. 400, 500 students. There was no oversight. The president clearly didn't really care about being there. There was no structure. There was none. Booth House, I'm sure you've heard about Booth House. Booth House was, you know, like um, the John Belushi movie. It really was like Animal House. And this is what I mean, like somebody who was probably working on forging or whatever, got a massive oil jump, probably like six feet across, huge oil jump, and must have rolled it onto campus, onto the green, 
cut it in half, lifted it up, put rocks under it, put wood under it, and lit a fire under it, and then turned it into a hot tub. You couldn't put your feet on the bottom of it because it was metal and there was a fire under it. And I remember it was like roasting people. And it was like out of, you know, a cartoon. There was also at Bennington this feeling that getting in didn't get you anywhere. That once you were enrolled, you had to prove you belonged. Two students making sure you walk the walk, talk the talk, Brick Smith and Lisa Fader. Here's Nancy Morowitz, class of 86, on Bricks and Lisa. They were snarling and terrifying and adorable at the same time. And you couldn't help but, you know, be struck by them. They were sort of like these little punk rock dolls. Bricks. I think we were, I, I don't know if we were bullies, but I mean, Lisa and I, we were bully punk, you know. There was one person even more punk than us, but I think you might call that crazy. And this girl, for her art project, she had her period, and each day of her period, she, she wore white underpants, and she bled in them for one day. And then when her period was over, she tacked up six white underpants, crotch face out, and framed them, and that was her art project. Soon after that, she was taken out of Bennington for mental illness reasons, but I have to tell you, That encapsulates the freedom that you have to create at Bennington. So you never know where this is going to lead. It could lead to like one of the greatest literary minds in America, or it could lead to rock stardom, or it could (laughs) lead to like a long time in the Louis bin. You just don't know. Ricks and Lisa were undeniably eye-catching. They caught Jonathan's eyes straight away. My roommate was Mark Norris. The first night, Mark and I introduced ourselves in our room and dressed up in our whatever we thought our new wave or new romantic outfits were. And we were like, okay, we're college kids now. Let's go meet the girls. And we walked to the commons across the lawn and we ran into Lisa Fader and Brixton. They were in a band already and they wore miniskirts under big men's plaid shirts. And they had gelled hair and they were just unbelievably cool and punky and exciting. And um, we just were like puppies. We would just follow them anywhere. Bricks was very definitely up for puppy-like devotion from Mark. So at Bennington, there were two and a half girls to every boy. And half the boys were gay. You know, so having a boyfriend at Bennington was like, the if you were a straight woman, was the ultimate status symbol. And of course, a cute one was better than a dog. So Mark Norris was a very cute boy at school. And I'm a go-getter, so I went after him. Mark, though, was already spoken for. Now, at the same time, there was another woman on campus who was extraordinarily adorable and talented, and that was Donna Tart. Donna Tartt, this absolute Southern pocket rocket of a woman, so fucking talented, so cool. Jonathan and Mark had served as a two-man welcoming committee to Donna. Here, Jonathan reads from Zelig of Notoriety, his nonfiction piece about going to college with Donna and Brett. My roommate Mark and I helped her move an ancient and gigantic trunk from the maintenance building to her room as if she'd arrived in Vermont on a steamship. 
She and I spoke across a temporal gap, none of her cultural references newer than J.M. Barry, none of mine older than Foghorn Leghorn, the only southern accent I knew. So Donna was from the past as much as she was from the South. Those qualities alone would be enough to make her an object of fascination among her classmates. But she was striking for another reason as well. Her reserve. Paula Powers. Everybody felt that they had to flaunt their sexuality all the time at Bennington. Donna was so discreet. When everybody else, it was just such a free-for-all. And it wasn't only the students doing the flaunting. Beth Greenberg-Jones. That was the thing that was so crazy about Bennington at that time, is that it was like the only supervision we had was probably the people who were our teachers. But um, the teachers were showing up at the party. Your Spanish teacher would be serenading you under your window, and then you'd have to go to his class the next day. Bennington regards education as a sensual and ethical, no less than an intellectual, process. So reads the commencement statement, a staple of every Bennington graduation ceremony since 1936. And Nora Ephron, who in her pre-When Harry Met Sally days wrote about Bennington for Esquire, coolly deadpanned that the school was famous for sex. Nancy Morowitz. People would just sort of drift on campus, you know, alumni, adults, you know, people would just sort of find their way there and plop themselves down in the living room of one of the dormitories. And I can remember having a conversation with a woman who'd gone there and she said, you know, I get one of two reactions when I say I've been to Bennington. It's either that people haven't heard of it or they raise their eyebrows and I understand that they know it in the venereal sense. And I just, I laughed and laughed, but it would, that often was the reaction. You know, you either, most of the time it was sort of a blank look, but sometimes you'd tell people and they'd say, oh, you know. <laughs> well, Bennington's nickname was the Little Red Whorehouse on the Hill. Maura Spiegel. There was a kind of excitement that I've never quite found again, you know? The sense of electric energy there, the feeling of the mystery of things, of secrets within secrets and what could be known. It's very, very hard to describe. The sort of fantasy ecla idea of decadence and of shocking the bourgeoisie, but, but really an element of, of just what can you come up with that nobody else has thought of doing, you know? And now, Brett Easton Ellis. The shock of arriving at Bennington in the fall of 1982 was enormous. Enormous. It had a hugely powerful effect on me. Growing up in L.A., I always felt alone. I always felt like I was rising toward adulthood. And to have this yearning to go back east, very powerful. And then to finally be there. And I think the memories that are strongest that I have in my, uh, my repertoire are those first two or three days at Bennington. And it was so different from wh where I had grown up here in Los Angeles. It was a giant shift for me, and it was overpowering. 
Ian Gittler, class of 84. Brett came to Bennington a heavily scarred young man. He looked pretty together, or completely together, but he was already describing his experience day to day in terms of depression and anxiety. He had a lot of talent. He had a lot of problems. He also had a suitcase full of drugs. And Brett had a second suitcase. That one full of the pages of a novel. Or rather, the pages of journalism that would serve as the basis for a novel. Less than zero. Okay, now that Brett has finally made his entrance, I have to interrupt myself, interrupt the flow of this narrative. Whenever I let it drop that I'm working on a podcast in which Brett Easton Ellis figures as a central character, I brace myself. Because I know that the barrage of eye rolls, lip farts, and get real snorts is likely coming. And at double speed since the 2020 publication of his book of apolitical political essays, White. As are such words as creep. Troll, MAGA-loving right-wing fuckface. The words are aimed at Brett, but I can tell the person is considering aiming them at me as well. As if in revealing my interest in Brett, I've revealed some heretofore unsuspected dark side. As if I've admitted to voting for Trump, which I certainly did not do. An added wrinkle, Brett Easton Ellis, as a writer, isn't my type. I read American Psycho back in 2000, when I was in college and the movie adaptation starring Christian Bale came out, I found it not just disturbing, but appalling. Exploitive and dirty, slick, joyless, cold, ghastly, an offense to both mind and eye. In fact, the moment I reached the bottom of its final page, which I did in the middle of the night, I carried it between pincered fingers to the dumpster behind my dorm because I didn't want it in the room with me while I slept. In short, I was an eye roller and a lip farter and a get real snorter when it came to Brad. And then in 2011, I stumbled across a piece of his in the Daily Beast called Notes on Charlie Sheen and the End of Empire. A profile of the troubled actor Charlie Sheen or a profile of the troubled actor Charlie Sheen was what it was on the surface. Under the surface though, it was social philosophy and profound. I'll nutshell its argument for you. So the great cultural shift of the 21st century began with the one-two punch of those hijacked planes crashing into the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001, an event so cataclysmic it changed everything, including our perception of what the world was like before it happened. And then the replacement of mass media by digital and social media, a non-event event, yet viewed retrospectively, every bit as traumatic and transformative. In the Charlie Sheen piece, Brett gave this shift a name, empire to post-empire. Another way of saying, he gave it a lens, a perspective, and in so doing, made incoherent times cohere, or start to at least. America, as an empire, is finished, washed up, over, kaput. And post-empire artists make their art out of empire detritus, by cultural dumpster diving, basically. David Lipsky, who would have been class of 87 had he lasted at Bennington for more than a single academic year, Brad's close friend before he was Brad's mortal enemy. Don't worry, we'll get to the mortal enemy thing later on. 
says this about notes on Charlie Sheen. It's a brilliant, brilliant portrait of how our political life and our cultural life changed. If you read that piece, like, it wasn't hard to understand that Trump was going to win. Democrats ran an empire convention, and the Republican convention in the summer of 2016 was like it was in a Walmart parking lot. It was like they were saying, look, we're in a different moment now. And so if you'd read Brett's essay, you knew there's a good chance this guy could win. So that puts him in an extremely small circle of people who knew where the culture was headed. After I finished notes on Charlie Sheen, I immediately went out and bought all Brett's books. He remained not my type, yet my opinion of his work changed, and radically. That isn't the point, though, because my taste isn't the point. Here's the point. Brett is the signal artist of the present day. You got a beef with that, take it up with the present day. He's the genius or outlaw we don't want to claim or own up to. Maybe even wish didn't exist. But whatever your view of him is, major novelist, minor fool, virtuoso, villain, prodigy, provocateur, pissant, he must be recognized as the key to cracking the code of American pop culture for the last 40 years. His work is an x-ray of the society that produced him, and he edits our past just as he plots out our future. Okay, so now is as good a time as any to explain the unconventional structure of this podcast. It will be divided roughly into two parts. One, centered on Brett and Less Than Zero. The other on Donna and the secret history, with Jonathan featured heavily throughout both. Three major Gen X writers from Bennington, class of 1986. Three. And whose world we are currently living in, Brett's or Donna's or Jonathan's, is very much up for debate. And these parts won't be separate, but rather will be mixed up and scrambled together. Because while the parts work as standalones, as portraits of a writer and his or her book, they work better as halves of a group portrait and a portrait of an era. It's Brett we start with, though, since it's Brett who started it all. Brett is the progenitor. Brett charted the course for Donna, who would use both his agent and editor. And in an anti-sense, Brett charted the course for Jonathan, who, consciously and defiantly, would go his own way. In fact, Brett, as the first Gen X writer to break through, which he did with Less Than Zero, charted the course for Gen X writers, period. No, for Gen X, period. He defined Gen X, even if Douglas Copeland named Gen X, explained Gen X to itself and to the generations that preceded it, how it thought, dressed, behaved, what its values were, its aspirations. Now, for what Brett's going to do for us, provide access, premier access. Follow him, this rake in his progress. Track him from his childhood home in Sherman Oaks, to his dorm room in Bingham House, to his condo in the East Village, and you will gain entry to some of the tastiest, nastiest, and farthest out scenes in the last quarter of the 20th century. All deeply, giddily thrilling and all with the frisson of exclusivity besides. The VIP treatment he will be scoring for us this season. One, early 80s private school Los Angeles. Teenagers who are the children of the rich and famous, soon to be rich and famous themselves, or already rich and famous themselves. Brett will get us so close, we'll be able to pick up the scent of their sun-kissed cocoa-buttered skin 
cop a contact high off their cocaine and carnality, both primo grade. Get ready for a cast of characters that includes pomp idols, youngest ever Oscar winners, Miami Vice stars, and Bond villains. Two, Bennington College, 1982 to 1986, which, well, you've sampled the goods. That's what the first half of this episode was about. Three, Literary and Cafe Society in New York City in the waning days of empire, 1985 to December, 1989. Oh, and so you know, wild as Brett's story is, Donna's is even wilder. And it's never been told. It's the secret history of the secret history, yeah. But it's also the secret history of Donna Tart. But back to Brett's two suitcases. One containing illegal narcotics. The other, the pages of nonfiction, soon to be converted into fiction. Less Than Zero. A seminal novel of the 1980s. So Less Than Zero is a purely Bennington phenomenon. The first draft was completed by Brett over winter break of 82 to 83, his freshman year at Bennington. Bought by Simon & Schuster in 84, his sophomore year at Bennington. Published in 85, instantly becoming a cultural sensation and making him instantly famous, his junior year at Bennington. Adapted into a movie, an all Brat Pack extravaganza with lead roles for Andrew McCarthy, Jamie Gertz, and Robert Downey Jr. in 87, one year after he graduated from Bennington. It was not at Bennington, however, that Less Than Zero was conceived. Brett. I started working on it when I was about 15 and a half or 16. It was called the Less Than Zero Project, and it went through many, uh, many variations, many iterations. Brett turned 16 in 1980, and he goes to high school at the Buckley School, located in L.A.'s San Fernando Valley. All right, listeners, take a deep breath, a slow exhale, because the first velvet rope is being lifted and an elegant finger crooked in our direction. Yes, we are nouveau trash, rowdy and graceless and terminally uncool. But not at this moment. At this moment, we are among the chosen. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. One of the reasons I was so alienated was I was gay, which was, even living in liberal Los Angeles in 1980, even when it seemed gayness was in the culture and announcing itself in specific ways, whether it was American Gigolo or Calvin Klein advertisements, you still weren't out as a teenager. It was something I just kind of accepted and said, okay, this is another thing that I've got to deal with. How am I going to navigate through this? This has been a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz, production coordination by Terrence Malangone, studio coordination by Sean Cherry, artwork and design by Kurt Courtney, marketing by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. 
It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.